Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Thanks of democracy. Very good. <laughs> Howdy, and thanks for listening in to another episode of Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. As you probably know, I've spent much of the last two decades in the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery before coming to ANU and covering some of the most tumultuous events of Australian politics. A swag of leadership contests, more often than not in government, meaning that prime ministers were being cut down and replaced, which was definitely high drama and big costs, as well as elections, ministerial scandals and depressing policy betrayals, such as the coalition's world-lagging performance on climate change. And there's been an assortment of short-term MPs who've come and gone, hoping to do good, people like Dr Karen Phelps, for example, and a cast of dilettantes, carpetbaggers and self-aggrandizers, a certain billionaire miner comes to mind. But my guest today is none of these things, and was in his decade in Canberra a representative of deep thought and equally deep commitment, the very antithesis of the fly-by-nighter. Yet his sudden departure was part of one of the more extraordinary stories I had seen in politics, even within a decade blighted by the rise of Trump and framed by the GFC at one end and the coronavirus at the other. That story was the bizarre series of parliamentary expulsions under Section 44 of the Constitution in which MPs and senators found themselves ineligible due to undisclosed, unresolved and generally unwitting foreign ties. Green's senator and that party's deputy leader, Scott Ludlam, was one of the earliest of these casualties. Now he's written a book which is in equal parts mesmerising, poetic and urgent. But it's no memoir. It's called Full Circle, A Search for a World That Comes Next. And although it's got bugger all to do with Section 44, Scott Ludlam, I'd like to start, if possible, uh, at that Section 44 thing, just because I think it's, uh, you know, it was such a tumultuous event and you were right in the middle of it. I wonder if you could just uh, give us a bit of a, you know, just remind us about what happened in 2017 uh, that, that saw you uh, summarily uh, removed from the parliament, really. Well, it's a, it's a strange legacy, isn't it? Um, so yes, I was the first domino. I was the first one out. Um, I was actually in New York at the time that I got the phone call speaking at the United Nations um, because the the nuclear weapons ban treaty was in the final stage of being negotiated and I'd got a civil society spot there because the Australian government hadn't shown up. Got a rather urgent series of calls from Perth saying, we've got this lawyer chasing us who believes that your your citizenship entitles would read you as ineligible. Can you please just settle this one? Um, within a week, um, it was apparent that it wasn't going to be possible to simply amend the paperwork and carry on, that it's the kind of thing that the constitution is very clear about. Having left New Zealand as a, as a three-year-old child, I um, kind of fatally under the circumstances just assume that citizenship entitlements don't follow you around for that long. 
that's a dangerous assumption. The constitution's pretty clear. So within a week, I had resigned. Um, I spent a rather lonely four days uh, being attacked for uh, being rather careless. And then the uh, the next series of dominoes eventually began to fall, starting with my dear colleague and friend, Larissa Waters, and then cutting a huge swathe through the crossbench, the Liberal National Party, handful of Labor MPs, um, and yeah, the rest is this, this rather shambolic history. <laughs> it certainly is. It was really a remarkable circumstance, and at various times there were there were ministers whose uh, you know situation, whose status was was hanging in the balance, and it really did uh, it did seem to be quite shambolic. And it was really um, a kind of an arcane, very archaic almost uh, provisions in the constitution, which had sort of lain dormant or at least lain unnoticed for a long time. And as you say, uh, um, you wouldn't have thought being born in New Zealand and, and, and living as an Australian citizen all that time that uh, there would be this compromise in a, in a kind of a legal constitutional sense, this question over your foreign allegiance, which is what that provision section 44 is about. But uh, you, you, took your, you took your lumps, as it were. Well, you kind of have to. Um, when it's black letter law like that, it was the first time I'm aware of that it had been tested politically. It's the first time that it's been tested in a serious way, at least in recent memory, by the High Court, which eventually read the provisions of the Constitution pretty broadly and knocked out some people with only, you know, tangential citizenship entitlements that they didn't seek, didn't ask for, didn't know that they had. Um, yeah, and and a lot of it yeah. sort of seemed to turn on on interpretation of of sort of foreign powers, really. Like if those foreign countries believed that there were some residual citizenship ties, then that became a problem for that was enough. Yeah, that was and, enough, and that it's like uh, sort of extraneous, really, to Australian law. Well, it is, um, and I mean, nobody considers New Zealand to be foreign, and I doubt that anybody considers it to be a power. But nonetheless, um, the High Court has spoken, and um, that's for me at least. It was it was quite unambiguous. For others, it was a line ball, um, mm. and and actually quite ambiguous constitutionally. But it is what it is. Um, it opened new doors, even as, as it was closing that one. Yes, and you make the point about New Zealand. The other thing that's kind of uh, not 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 escaped many people was the notion that that Britain was a foreign country. Now, it's no big deal necessarily, but the Queen of England is the Queen of Australia. I mean, <laughs> we're, still, we're still not a constitu constituted republic, and, uh, it's, and yet there it's, it is. It's bonkers. I mean, and look, in some of the WikiLeaks revelations from the State Department cables, it's noted that Labor MPs act as protected sources for the US Embassy. They, they were gossiping and handing on quite sensitive political information to the US government about the coup against Prime Minister Gillard before their caucus colleagues even knew that it was afoot. Um, that's not banned in the constitution as allegiance to a foreign power, but being a Kiwi or having British citizenship entitlements um, apparently is. So nobody's claiming that it makes sense, but the constitution is a constitution if you're yes. a member of parliament anyway. Well, that's right. And as we know, it's a very difficult document to change. Nonetheless, you seem to, uh, you took it, um, no matter how hard it was uh, to take, you, you took it, uh, as you say, unambiguously and philosophically, and you've gone on to, uh, to do other things. Seems to me that you're quite rare in politics in that sense. A number of the people who were struck out found ways to come back in um, and to continue their parliamentary careers. And we know that a lot of people in politics just cannot let go. They, you know, it's it's a very hard thing to climb the greasy pole, particularly up through the major parties. And um, and we have people who just become sort of, well, they certainly try to become lifers. There, uh, you obviously took a different view that circumstances beyond your control uh, had occurred, and you know, you took the shock and then walked away. Yeah, and it was a, it's a difficult thing um, because it doesn't just affect me. There's staff who were suddenly left in an office without an MP. There's hundreds of volunteers with the Greens who less than a year earlier um, spent months of their lives door knocking and phone banking and, and volunteering um, to get us over the line. And so it was quite traumatic, not just for me, but for the wider movement. 
I think the long view is you don't want to hang around in there too long or you end up looking like Philip Ruddock. There's there's a time when you get the tap on the shoulder and that was a gigantic tap on the shoulder suggesting, you know, nine years, decent innings, time to step away. I don't think it's healthy for any of us to be in there for too long. But yeah, it wasn't the manner of my choosing. It's not not how I would have chosen to step away. But you don't always get to choose, I guess. No, you don't. And it's an, it's a very good point you make about about staff and and supporters, people who've given a lot uh, or whose livelihoods depend on your ongoing, um, you know, uh, employment or the employment that you give them by being a senator or a member of parliament. Um, that's too often forgotten, I suppose. Um, can I ask you about? Whether, whether in relation to that or more broadly, you still retain your faith in parliamentary politics? I'm, um, I think I probably got a, a better idea than I did going in. Um, and also things, things have changed quite rapidly in that decade. Um, to give them their due, Prime Ministers Rudd and Gillard consecutively did try to take on some of the entrenched power structures that run the country. Uh, and we've seen the consequences. You know, the Minerals Councils and their allies spent about $22 million to get rid of Rudd over the mining tax. They spent more than that deposing Gillard over the Clean Energy Act and the carbon price. But it's broken the spine of the Labor Party and it means now, as I discuss in the book, we're facing a situation akin to state capture. It's not corruption, it's something more systematic. I don't think it was as bad as that. When I came into politics, the Labor Party still had a fighting spirit that's basically lacking now because it's been thrashed out of them by by these industry conglomerates um, that have such a tight lock on our politics. So I'm not, I'm not cynical so much about the mechanisms, but certainly about the way that they're operating at the moment. Something's, something's gone deeply wrong in that intervening decade. And when you say state, ca- state capture, just to be clear, you're talking about uh, very well-resourced commercial interests that have an undue and largely unappreciated influence on politics. It's not just an influence. Uh, in, in the US, there's a team of researchers that I came across who call it the investment theory of party competition, which basically just holds, and they've got a lot of data in the US context, showing that whoever spends the most money wins. Whoever invests the most in their candidate on the way through, in a House of Reps election in the US at least, uh, has an almost straight line correlation with the, with the share of vote. In the Australian context, in five out of five of the last federal election, this is Grattan Institute research, the party that spent the most money won the most seats. And what that amounts to in the Australian context is that the resources sector has a working majority in the House of Representatives, no matter which major party holds government, uh, which very tightly constrains your political options in defence policy, foreign policy, industry, economic policy. Uh, and it's the reason that we don't have any kind of functioning uh, climate adaptation or mitigation strategy in this country. So in South Africa, they call it state capture. So elections no longer really shift things, and it's investors that control the, the political signals that party sends to the electorate and really narrow your options. It's not corruption. It's much more systematic than that. But it is corrupt. It's just a different form of – it's not necessarily – it doesn't necessarily meet a legal test of corruption, but it is a an abstraction or a, remo- a level of removal away from what people understand to be the democratic process. Right, but I think it's valuable to actually name it as something other than corruption because no laws are getting broken. When, you, when mm. you, your lawmaking apparatus is the, is the site of capture or it's the target, then it's not paper bags – you know, full of cash, although that obviously that still happens around election time, but that's not the problem. It's much more systematic. A lot of it's broad daylight. A lot of it's above the table and and laws aren't being broken. And so that that's why in South Africa, they found it useful to name it as state capture rather than the kind of petty corruption involving helicopter flights or whatever. Right. Uh, one of the things that uh, has frustrated me and many people, you, you no doubt as well, for a long time has been uh, our donations laws in this country, um, the uh, the way that uh, relatively significant donations of multiple thousands of dollars can be given without any declaration, but also even larger de- uh, donations that are not known about until uh, declaration time. So, I mean, we had that case in uh, in the 2016 election where... Um, Malcolm Turnbull himself, the Prime Minister himself at the time, you know, tipped in money to his election campaign. And when I say money, I mean $1.75 million is a fairly significant swag of money. Therefore, that would have been a very interesting political story 
at the time in the context of the election uh, and perhaps uh, would have led some people to um, uh, you know to change their vote or to ask questions about you know whether that's an appropriate way to go now we didn't learn about that for i think it was about 12 or 18 months after the um, after that donation was made so the the the, the absence of real time declaration you know trans proper transparency in the donation uh, process to political parties uh, is just just something that could have easily been fixed and just hasn't. Yeah, so that's it. The lag and the lack of transparency and clarity around the source and the and the target of donations, and particularly that it can be up to an eighteen month latency. I think mm. before you find out who funded the people who are who were sitting in parliament is definitely a big part of it. The other big part is the revolving door. I in the work I was doing um, in order to put the book together. A lot of folk indicated that it's not it's not strictly a straight line correlation between a donation and an outcome. It's more a pay to play system where you don't even really get to be in the room to make your pitch for for whatever your whatever industry sector you're arguing for, uh, unless you can afford the the price of entry. Both the major parties and the nationals have these business fora, and the top tier access is one hundred and ten thousand dollars a year. Um, which allows you into these policy conferences. It gets you into budget night lockup or budget night speeches and the press gallery ball and so on. Um, and so it's not quite as simple as just who's donating, although that's obviously very important. It's it's this pay for play thing, which most Australians have absolutely no access to. Um, that and the revolving door, the fact that you've got this very very tight circle of movement between industry bodies, industry peak bodies, the Murdoch press in particular, and senior tiers of executive government, both at a staff and an MP level. And that people move seamlessly between those between those three groups, often, you know, in multiple directions in any given career. That means you're sort of dealing with an entity that looks as though it's separate and articulated, but it, it moves with a lot of unity um, because it's all the same people. So it's not quite as simple. I think don- fixing donation laws, the kind of stuff the Human Rights Law Centre is campaigning on a thing called Framework for a Fair Democracy, where they started to sketch um, what it would look like if we if we unclenched the grip uh, of, of investor groups. Um, but I think the, ma- the main thing is to name it up and to be clear that what we're dealing with isn't as petty as corruption. It's something that's a lot more systematic and entrenched. Yeah, and uh, and as you say, uh, just having uh, having the advantage of people actually being able to see—that is, the Australian people being able to actually see what is going on—would go a yeah. long way towards tempering some of the worst aspects of this, yeah. uh, because people, um, you know, politicians, political parties would be um, would be taking risks if they do things that that don't look or smell right. What do That's you, right. you mentioned the, the mentioned the Murdoch Press, and I, I knew you would, but. Um, uh, what do you think? Not not specifically focusing on on the Murdoch press, but what do you think about the tenor of public debate in Australia? Um, is it is it better or worse than it used to be in your view? Or we, you know, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about political polarisation and the the extreme cases being the ones we've seen in the UK and 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 the USA in particular under Trump. Uh, yeah. There's been a degree of polarisation here, fragmentation of the media, fragmentation of the electorate. Are you concerned about the the quality, the tone and quality of, of public debate in Australia? I am. And it, I mean, it's not simple to characterise, is it? Because you've got commercial organisations that are under enormous financial press uh, pressure with the collapse of advertising revenues, um, which has you know, driven this immense consolidation and collapse in some quarters, particularly regional regional press. The ABC is under very different kinds of stress and, cons- and constraints. And for a spell there, I think for a brief blessed spell, you could see the emergence, and you can still see it, of independent voices on social media, the kind of podcasts that you're running, the stuff that Michael West is doing, the stuff that Crikey is doing, even The Guardian. You know, this the emergence online of new platforms and independent voices. And to counter the power of that, uh, we're seeing those same um, social media platforms flooded with these immense disinformation swarms, where if you can't censor these voices, you can you can flood the zone with with bullshit and with kind of with with a sort of brain poison that's making even something as that should be as simple as a vaccine rollout inordinately difficult. Um, 
So, yeah, the political debate is kind of is swamped and there's plenty of bright lights and pr- plenty of independent um, people doing very interesting things, but it's in such a crowded and, and messy field that it's, it's obviously very difficult to cut through. So let's get to your book. It's called Full Circle, uh, A Search for a World That Comes Next. So there's, there's, I guess, plenty of lament in it because there's, there's quite a bit to be worried about, but there's also, there's also uh, you know, constructive and hopeful um, thought that's gone into the book. You organise it around five themes, um, the first one being a, a sort of a geo-history um, I understand you've referred to this before as a kind of a love letter to the planet. Can you just expand on that? <laughs> well, I, it's partly because I've always wanted to write something like that um, and and see if I could make it work, not as a scientific text, but something a little bit more lyrical that still provided the deep context for this upstart branch of industrial society that's messing with the climate itself, you know, with the, with the, these profound and deep and old processes that govern geology itself, the oceans, atmospheric circulation, the kind of rise and fall of ice ages. And these things have this very, very deep history that shaped the entire planet. And now we're performing this incendiary experiment with with un, unknown consequences. I, f- I thought the one way of grounding that was in telling that, deep, that very deep story about what it is that we're playing with. Um, so yeah, that that forms the first theme, and and um, I hope it grounds the book in something um, that's not ephemeral, something that feels like it's like it's deep and old. Well, it, it certainly does, and I think there's um, references there to the the uh, sort of record that shows the influence of, uh, for example, the introduction of of coal in a major way in the late eighteen hundreds. Um, so it, it's it's a way of I guess setting up and and framing or containing really uh, the damage that's being done to the to the uh, to the global ecology within a relatively short period of time, given the the sheer scale of time that you're talking about in the in the sort of planetary history. Yeah, geologically, it's a blink. But in terms of, of human, you know, modern human history or industrial history, at least, we're contending with the fact that the planet itself is a political actor now. Most of our political theory is, is dealing with this, you know, old tussle between labour and capital or the distribution of resources or, um, you know, this, the stuff of political theory textbooks. The difficulty is they now have to accommodate geology itself and these, these enormous and quite mysterious and unpredictable ecological processes and fitting that into, you know, much faster and more ephemeral human um, political thinking is, is quite a task, but I feel like that's something that's, that we absolutely have to try. And although it's not my tradition and they're, they're clearly not my stories to tell first nations communities um, who have been on front lines of, of these struggles for generations obviously got their way before us you know these philosophies these philosophies exist so in a way it's it's a process of rediscovery for for some of us who have been at this much more recently yes um the the next chapter or next section begins it's called coins of the anthropocene um and i was absolutely fascinated by the story you tell about the chessboard i wonder if i could get you to uh, give us uh, give people listening a um a summary of that because it's a spectacular mental image. And there's a lot of really clever mental imag- imagery in this book and I think that's one of the fascinating ways in which this book works. I, I really like the way you often write in the present tense um, and there's a real sense that you're talking to the reader and, and, and having a conversation uh, and playing with metaphors and so forth. But this, uh, this, this one about the chessboard is particularly evocative. All right, well, we're giving some spoilers away, but it happens early in the book, so I guess it's okay. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just I'm fumbling around really looking for a metaphor or an analogy that will describe the reality of when people casually use terms like economic growth, which is absolute unimpeachable orthodoxy uh, across most of our politics, across much of the world. What they're actually talking about is, is an industrial footprint that's twice as heavy twice as aggressive about every 25 years so the chessboard metaphor comes from this this old story about a mathematician who 
presents the queen with this with the invention of the game of chess and she says well how could i pay you for this thing and the mathematician says pay me in gold and i want you to put one coin on the first square of the chessboard and then two coins on the second square and then four and then eight then 16 32 64 and just keep doubling until all the all the squares of the chessboard have coins on them how many coins is the mathematician owned the stack of coins on the 64th square would would stretch about a quarter of the way to alpha centauri it's a bonkers number and that's this doubling path that we've set our economy on which is why the sky is on fire um, and why adelaide was covered in dust yesterday and why the you know the coastlines are are about to move for the first time in 10 or eleven thousand years i find uh, this i find this image though just absolutely staggering uh, and as much as I accept the the maths, and I'm I'm no great numbers man, I have to admit, but me, um, me neither. <laughs> it's it's really an extraordinary um, it, um, demonstration of exponential growth, isn't it? That you start off with one coin, and in the space of a chessboard, you yeah. have a column that long. Okay, but we're doing that with the planet, and we're mm. doing that with iron ore and gold and oil and fish and fresh water and. Um, paper pulp we're playing that doubling game with the living fabrics of the planet that we live on which is catastrophic but we've somehow normalized it so part of the purpose of the book is to is to demonstrate that that's not normal that that's disastrous but also to talk about the link between that material economy and that material throughput and the financial economy which is a creature of pure mathematics let's take a quick break there Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking just before the break about the, the sections of the of the book that you've divided this up into. The third section, you uh, look at sort of pushing back um, and you talk about, I think you introduce, you know, some, some level of hope into the book at this stage. Um, you discuss systems theory, among other things. Uh, what are you trying to do with this section of the book? Well, systems theory is a this kind of loose collection of disciplines that examines um, elements of the na- of the natural world that aren't linear. So that that looks at the phenomenon of earthquakes or of weather patterns, or you know, it's where chaos theory comes from. It's where complexity theory comes from. Um, and there's a there's a bunch of work in there that I'd never seen applied to social movements in a systematic way but written for organisers, not in a theoretical sense, but the dynamics of collisions. Why is it that waves of strikes in the past that are documented in France and the United States have the same underlying mathematics as waves of earthquakes or outbreaks of forest fires or epidemics? I wondered for a long time, not just whether that was interesting, because I think it is, but whether it was useful for organisations like Extinction Rebellion or the school strikers, where you see these same cascades where actions of a solitary school striker or a single event or a single action unleash these kind of waves um, of contention across society. Sociologists have been studying this for decades. So the part of the book that is dealing with that is bringing it to bear on the climate crisis. So what are these dynamics, these collisions between the powerless and the powerful? How have they operated in the past? And can we learn anything from them in, in this moment? An obvious uh, retort to that, and I'm sure you have an answer for this, but an obvious retort to that is that um, there are differences between, for example, waves of 
mini earthquakes and uh, and you know those social cataclysms or those upwellings of of, of protest that you know, whether it be industrial protest like strikes or or uh, or social civil political protests like uh, that we've seen come out of, you know Black Lives Matter Extinction Rebellion the, the Greta Thunberg uh, um, process the school strikers uh, some of those uh, might be explained by by sort of copycatism or at least being awakened to the possibilities of collective action and you know the the publicity is associated with them so so one protest begets the possibility of further protests whereas earthquakes isn't it the case that um multiple earthquakes multiple small earthquakes tend to relieve tectonic pressure and therefore obviate more frequent larger earthquakes there's, it feels like there's a little bit more to it than that. There's clearly a difference between a purely physical system like an earthquake mm-hmm. and, and a strike. And the main difference is that the strike is adaptive, that all sides of social contention learn. They learn and they adapt and they remember past collisions and they bring those memories to bear each time. And so they're, they're adaptive in that sense in a way that earthquakes aren't. And that means that there's that there's possibilities and behaviours that are that are possible in social systems of transformation that don't exist on a fault line or in some of the other more physical examples. But the, the underlying patterns of the frequency, how often does a big event happen compared with how often do swarms of small events happen, are such that the mathematics, if you graph those things, you can't, the, the mathematics are identical. You can't tell the difference between mm. a graph of earthquake frequencies and... Uh, and and strike waves, and I thought that is interesting for people who it are is. trying to organise these these kind of cascades um, with a sense of urgency. So it's not that all of the answers are there, but I I found some very very interesting studies, and it's been it's been a great process bringing some of those to light. Yeah, you mentioned you were in New York when you got that section forty four news, uh, and that's where the section four of the book I think uh, really draws in a lot of your travel uh, where you've been around the world and the people you've spoken to and some of those experiences that you've gained. Um, and I was saying earlier that, that about the, the style with which you've written the book. Um, in Section 4, there's a, a good example of, of this very lyrical style, which I, I must say I very much enjoyed. Um, and you're, you're in Japan and you are talking about a, a number of these forces um, you you start the um, you start the book with uh, with with kind of I don't know it's, it's like you, you're not constrained by the normal sentence structure that uh, that, that some <laughs> other writers use, uh, and, but in a good way I might say. I'll take that as uh, a compliment. You should take it as a compliment because I'm, I certainly mean it that way. I'll give I'll give a very short example. You th- this uh, this section begins. Let's get off these cold streets. Somewhere in this endless, fascinating city, we'll find a warm place where we can understand these questions better. It's very conversational and very sort of inclusive in its style. Um, and then you go on to talk about grains of sand, grains of <laughs> sand. You, you, you paint a picture in the mind of, of individual grains of sand falling and falling a pile. And this goes to what you were just saying about, you know, graph, you know, mapping the incidence of, of small and large events and the yeah. random nature of them, or at least the apparently random nature of them. Tell us about that grains of sand. Uh, what, what, what that taught you, uh, thinking about that. So the sand pile game comes from a series of mathematical experiments performed by a Danish physicist years and years ago where they were mapping this, this idea of cascades large and small and how often do really big avalanches happen on a sand pile compared to how often little ones happen. And they found that the ratio between um, frequency and intensity of landslides is smooth through an enormous range of scales, which means that the chances of an avalanche doubling in intensity are a, a straight line no matter how big yeah. the avalanche already is. And it's the same for an earthquake and it's the same for a forest fire. And the crazy thing is it's the same for a strike. The chances of it doubling in intensity are identical, no matter how big it already is. The same for a nuclear accident. So this this phenomenon, which is what they call a power law relationship, um, is is common through all these natural and institutional systems. And the question is, 
what does that mean for people trying to organise in social movements, trying to organise strike action or a school strike um, to, to, to change power structures? Uh, and it, it does tell us, it, it does give us certain insights, I think, for organisers, for people working on these things. And that those insights for organisers and uh, the broader lessons, uh, I guess, for, uh, for for anyone who's looking to drive change, drive uh, social and environmental improvement is encouraging. And that's how you uh, move into the last stage of the book, which is really imagining the world, I guess, in a, in a better place than it is now, asking the question, what happens if we win? Yeah. Well, we've we've got to do that because I, there's there's very little that's motivating about dystopian visions of what happens if we don't win, and people working <laughs> right. people working for social justice or some kind of environmental sanity or for for climate justice are we're continually confronted with the consequences of failure, um, and we've all seen plenty of it. So a lot of the book is dealing with real world case studies to kind of land. The, the more theoretical stuff and hopefully ground it in the reality of struggles around the world. And the last part of the book is concerned with this slightly risky question of what happens if we're successful all, all at roughly the same time, all these different people engage in all these different dimensions of struggle around the world. What would happen if we were to prevail and actually shrug off the, the coin doubling game um, and the, the kind of form of modern predator capitalism, what happens if we were to move past that? What does it look like? And it is is—it's—it is risky, some of these propositions, but if we don't have hope for that, um, which is unfolding all over the world, there's, there's incredible signs of hope from everywhere, um, then it's, it's difficult to motivate people to continue, to continue doing that work. That question of, of hope and optimism, I agree, it's uh, absolutely critical uh, that, that people maintain that. Um, but if I look at your own party, for example, the Greens, there hasn't been a. Um, there have been some quite significant, you know, achievements over time in electoral achievements, for example, particularly in some states and involvement in governments and the like. But as a proportion, as a share of the the vote nationally, the Greens are good for you know somewhere ten, twelve percent. It it doesn't seem to creep much above that, um, and and yet I can recall. Thinking back to when Bob Brown was leader, him talking about, you know, the, the Greens potentially being a party of government at some point in the future, is that is is that lack of progress toward that something that concerns you? And and doesn't that in a way show that um, there is, you know, there is a, a wedge of the community to which you're speaking, but you're struggling to go beyond it. Yeah, it's it's. It's, I think it's a bit more complex than that because Bob was right. Um, we're not a party of government sometime in the future. In the ACT, we're a party of government now. Mm. So Canberra, the capital of the Commonwealth, and I wish we talked about this more, is a 100% renewable city. And that's that's something that's actually quite rare anywhere on earth. It's a big town. It's not an industrial town with, with aluminium smelters, but it's a, it's a big modern city that's running on 100% clean energy because the climate change minister is a green, Shane Rattenbury. And the relationship with the Labor Party there are collegial. I, I know it's bumpy at times, but people are respectful of each other. It's a very similar picture in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where green climate change minister working uh, and, and other ministers working quite productively with the the Labor the Labor government there. So we've proven that we can do it. Adam Bant is sitting I know it's it's I hesitate to say safe, but I, he's sitting on one of the the strongest two party preferred margins in the country in the seat of Melbourne. So it's not that we're constrained to the ten or twelve percent. It's that uh, and and I I still rate the ability to maintain that degree of vote for twenty five years, given the kind of pressure that we're under and the fact that we're not taking donations from the resources sector uh, or any other big industry industry groups. Of course, it would be. Uh, of course, we're all waiting and working for the next moment of slippage where we where we jump to that next tier and start um, winning more lower house seats and take up a larger proportion of the House of Reps. I think those moments of slippage are out there. If anything, the book suggests it's that you have to just keep working. You have to keep at it. Those moments of slippage are there. Um, the only thing you can't afford to do is to give up. 
Does it inevitably mean that if the Greens are to expand their parliamentary hold and they do so at the uh, cost of the Labor Party? No, I don't think there's an, any inevitability to that. The Labor Party's got to work out what it's for. Why, why does it exist? Um, it's come, I think, since the Rudd-Gillard era, where it was traumatised and broken by the Minerals Council and the gas lobby. It's got to work out whether it wants to stay in this broken form uh, listening to Joel Fitzgibbon or whether it's prepared to pull itself together and actually be the Labor Party again. Um, well, that's a fair there... comment. That's a fair comment. But can, if I could just interrupt you there, because sure. the last election, uh, they took uh, a very a fairly progressive tax redistribution agenda to the election. You know, the franking credits, the uh, yeah. uh, ending franking credits, uh, reducing capital gains tax discounts, curbing negative gearing, among other things. Of course, there was the 45% to 2030 target emissions cut. Um, you know, all of these things were, uh, you know, politically ambitious within the Australian context and a lot of the commentary afterwards suggested that either each one of them or all of them together were too much for the electorate to uh, to uh, digest and therefore they didn't make it. So I don't know that it's entirely fair to say that ever since Gillard they haven't been prepared to put forward a progressive agenda or at least an adventurous agenda. It's just that it didn't prevail. Yeah, and I, I don't know how productive it is for somebody like me to be critiquing the Labor Party because they've got they've got enough, you know, internal difficulties without me piling on. In what in an event that people were calling the climate change election, they proposed a massive taxpayer handout for a gas pipeline out of the Beetaloo Basin and couldn't decide if they supported the Adani mine or not. They were telling electors in Queensland one thing and electors in Melbourne the opposite. And we've run out of time for, for that kind of behaviour. Pick a side. Um, and I'm, I'm not certain that they will. You know that it's possible because they've done so in the past, but they have to be clear with people, and for climate change, we've really run out of time and room for ambiguity. And yet it seems like they are now hedging on that question of the 2030 target. Uh, you know, the, we, we don't know where they're going to land, but at the moment they've got a commitment to net zero by 2050, but, but no specified interim targets. Right. Government doesn't even have that. Uh, well, the government, the government, to be fair, does have a twenty thirty target. It's twenty six percent. But um, twenty twenty fifty is like hitting the brakes when the car's at the bottom of the cliff. There's there's simply no sense in talking about twenty fifty. We have to talk about what's happening in the next three to five years for for these commitments to have any meaning whatsoever. But twenty fifty, presumably, it 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 um it requires interim targets to get there. That's so let's let's talk that's about why those. Scott Morrison is hesitating, isn't it? But this is this is when it when it comes back to state capture because you can look at what Labor state administrations are doing in Queensland, WA, and the Northern Territory, which is absolute breaks off oil and gas development, coal development in New South Wales. Um, it and it doesn't matter federally um, whether you flip to a Labor government or not. Under a system of state capture, the resources sector is still going to have a working majority in the House of Reps. And that's a hard thing for some Labor voters to hear, but we have to be honest about the, the way that things are structured at the moment until we break that nexus. And that'll be, I think, a mix of you know, technical reforms to donations and revolving doors and lobbyist disclosure and that kind of stuff that we were discussing earlier. But also, I think we have to be really honest about the role that these investor groups are playing in our politics. We have to call it out and we have to break that nexus. Scott Morrison is off to the G7 this very weekend, um, the G7 Plus talks in Cornwall in England. Uh, and, of course, later in the year he's got the uh, the, the, the uh, Glasgow Climate Change uh, Conference, the UN Climate Change Conference, wherein it is widely tipped that he's – well, by which time it's widely tipped that he's going to announce a commitment to net zero by 2050. This is something his a number of people in his own party seem – you know, unable to yeah. contemplate, but that's been a long-term thing. Honestly, twenty. Who who cares what Scott Morrison thinks about twenty fifty? He's going to be long gone. While they're still proposing to unlock new, they're, they're just committed six hundred million dollars of taxpayers' money to a new gas plant that even the energy sector believes is going to be obsolete on the day it's built. Their their commitments for twenty fifty or even twenty thirty are worthless. While they're still going ahead with extraction of coal and gas and still proposing new fossil-fired power stations. We have to look at what they're doing, not just what they're saying. 
Well, what, one of the things that interests me is that uh, I've, I've seen some of uh, some of the things he said in recent times about the positioning of Australia in this G7 meeting coming up and in the, the Glasgow talks after that. And among other things, he talks about the high take-up of rooftop solar. And, um, you know, just there's a certain irony that I can feel there, you know, like people are sort of taking it on themselves to do things that the government hasn't been doing and now the government is going to go abroad right. and say, look at the achievement we've made in transforming our economy. Well, most of the rooftop, um, you know, the domestic rooftop installation, um, which is among the highest in the world, has been due to state and territory incentive structures and yes. rebates and, and that kind of stuff. And the, the feds can take no credit for that at all. They also, in these same fora, brag about um, the investments that ARENA is making and the, the investments that the Clean Energy Finance Corporation is making, and they conveniently forget to admit that they tried to abolish both of those things, the last kind of standing pieces of the Clean Energy Act. I've, on more occasions than I can count, they tried to abolish those, and at each time they were rebuffed by the Senate. So we're making some limited progress despite the federal government, not because of them. So I... I would be happy if he was again uninvited to Glasgow as he was to the to those discussions late last year because we don't deserve a seat at that table while we're behaving like a petro state. Can I move just uh, in the final part of this to uh, I was talking before about the sort of state of debate and we, you, you've mentioned a number of the kind of um, community manifestations, uh, campaign manifestations on the left of the spectrum, Black Lives Matters, um, those sorts of uh, groups. Um, are you concerned at all about, as there has been a number of people you know, noting this, are you concerned at all about cancel culture or a sort of a tendency of absolutism on the left that is that is sort of illiberal in its uh, tendencies? Not really. I mean, at the margins, sure, but mostly the reaction against cancel culture, which is being kind of blown up into this into this gigantic spectral form by elements of the right is simply the ability of um, of people to call out shitty behavior and 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 smash up the reputations of powerful people who've kind of been a bit out of their reach until fairly recently and I think it is a phenomenon of social media that allows um, racism or misogynistic behavior uh, or shitty behavior in the past to be called out. And to have that have consequences, um, you know, no wonder these people are blowing up this this gigantic myth of of this terrifying thing called cancel culture, which means for the first time there are consequences for powerful people um, who behave terribly. So, but they're not they're not always people who behave terribly. Are they? They're just they're, people are being uh, essentially vilified in some cases, deplatformed or whatever it is, or there are calls for them to be. Uh, you know, silenced for having yeah. different views. You know, I, J.K. Rowling or someone like that. Who? Yeah, J.K. Rowling is is terribly, terribly transphobic in a lot of her attitudes and harms vulnerable people and routinely punches down, either knowingly or unknowingly. So that's that's one particularly interesting example where that community fights back, and that call it cancel culture if you like, but. People do have a way now of communicating two-way when those with powerful platforms or big megaphones or big audiences say stuff that is actively harmful to sections of the community, that there can be consequences now. And, yeah, it's, it can be a very messy and splattery process and it's not, you know, it's not always pretty and it's, not, it's probably not always right. But It's not always uh, fair. Uh, it's not. Uh, I mean, it... I mean, the, the the left that I understood when I was growing up was, you know, had a number of different elements to it. But you know, the I don't know if you remember the uh, the show Rumpole, for example. Rumpole had a had a saying, which is Rumpole never prosecutes. You know, that was for the establishment to do. The 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 the, the left was, you know, more larrikin. It had more uh, more more iconoclasm in it. It had more of a sort of a speak truth to power, look out for the little person uh, type of approach. Now it seems the left often seeks to. It's not so much rump, you know Rumpole never prosecutes. Says don't even take it to court. Just do the prosecution out in the public square. I don't. I don't even know what the left is in this country anymore. So, and Rumpole's a little bit before my time. So I'm <laughs> no, I, I know. Take your word I, for I, it. So, 
I know, I know the kind of swarm behavior can be messy uh, at times, but I think on the whole, this phenomenon that's been blown up of this terrifying, you know, phenomenon of, of uh, cancel culture, it, and I know you can certainly point to examples where it's where it's somewhat indiscriminate, but on, on the whole, it's simply about consequences for for shitty behaviour. So I I don't think it's quite this um, huge huge problem that it's being made out to be. Well, maybe I speak as someone with journalistic uh, journalistic background. I know a lot of my former colleagues are. Um, you know, have simply walked away from a lot of social media because they find that when when they write things, um, and these are not people carrying a can for you know, for right wing media proprietors or whatever, they're sure. just people who are uh, writing a, a news account of something. And if there isn't a strong enough condemnation of of some particular thing, then they are because of that kind of binary world that we now live in. You know, you're either a full supporter or you're a full enemy. And yeah, and uh, the, the the I think the level of discourse is. Um, uh, pretty unedifying a lot of the time, and I think it's, it, re- it reflects a, 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 a misunderstanding of what journalism is, what the journalistic project is. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. There's a lot of cynicism and polarization out there, and that tends to wash out the shades of grey or some of the nuances um, where sometimes that's necessary. Yes, I think there's there's no doubt about that. Well, that's a, 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 um, a very nice way of putting it, actually. I think it's uh, that's well expressed, as indeed is your entire book. It's a fabulous read. As I say, it's called Full Circle, Search for the World That Comes Next, out from Black Ink. Uh, congratulations, Scott Ludlam, on the, on the book. It's really a, a worthwhile read. Uh, it says on the front, um, it's an advertising blurb, of course, but it says on the front, front Australia lost a senator, the world gained, gained a luminous writer. And I think it is really um, a very special piece of writing and uh, I congratulate you for it. Oh, I really appreciate that. That's, um, that's lovely and thanks for your time. It's been a great conversation. Good on you, Scott. Thank you very much, Mark Kenny, uh, with uh, signing out for this week's Democracy Sausage. Talk to you again next week. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.